0: And many more. July the 20th to the 31st at Cinema Nova. A 3CR supporter.
1: Green Left Weekly Radio.
0: There's one newspaper that is independent of powerful capitalist interests and that is Green Left Weekly.
2: It's the people's voice, committed to human and civil rights, ecological sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas that the mainstream media won't.
3: Green left is a leading source of local, national and international news with analysis, discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement.
2: It helps expose the lies of the capitalist press and puts the voices of the marginalised and the oppressed at the centre of fighting for a better world and helps us understand the political developments unfolding around us.
4: Good morning, listeners. You are listening to Green Left Radio on 3CR 855. Good morning. Um, You are joined by me, Chloe, um, and we've got also Jacob in the studio with us, as well as Ari. Good morning.
0: Hello. Good morning, everyone.
4: And just before we begin our program, we would like to acknowledge that we are coming to you from the Wurundjeri, um, the land of the Wurundjeri and Boomerang people of the Kulin Nation, Uh, as they are the rightful and sovereign owners of the land on which we live, work, and organize. Um, And this land was stolen, it was taken by force, and was never ceded. And the colonization of their land continues to this day, and we pay our respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land.
0: All right. So um, usually for the start of the program, we usually start with a bit of a kind of headlo- headline kind of news kind of discussion. There's been quite a number of things that have kind of dominated the headlines. I mean, the main kind of thing that has been the kind of big sort of thing for this for this past week has been um, the overturning of Roe versus Wade within the United States, which basically removes the co- um, what was. what existed as a constitutional right to abortion in the United States and essentially means it leaves it up to states to decide on whether abortion is legal. Now, the unfortunate thing about that is actually... (laughs) That is actually quite a good number of states are already going to look to make abortion legal. Yeah, several even,
5: of them have already banned it. Yeah,
0: um, almost all of them, or <laughs> close to, and there's only very limited number of states that even allow you to have an abortion, but then even allow you to have abortion without being sued
3: yeah. <laughs>
0: uh, by, a con- uh, by the conservative right. But we're going to be having an interview with Kamala Emanuel, um, which we recorded um, which we recorded on Tuesday night. Me and Ari recorded that interview. So we'll be playing a recording of that um, later in the program today where we'll be discussing that in more detail. Yeah,
4: that's our second interview. So Kamala Emanuel, she's a member of um, Social Alliance and also an abortion provider. She's a, a doctor and a long-time campaigner for abortion rights. But maybe we should tell listeners the interview we have first, um, which is with Sue Bull. So we're going to be talking about the energy crisis um, with Sue Bull, who's a long-time climate activist, and she's involved in the Geelong Renewables Not Gas campaign. Um, and that's at 7.10. And then, yeah, stay tuned for the pre recorded with Kamala at 7.45, is it? Yeah? seven
0: f- so, well, thirty-five. Yeah, supposed so, to be about 7.35. To, yeah.
4: yeah. And then our last interview, which will be, you know, hopefully at 8.10, will be with Karen Fletcher, who... Is um, involved with pro-women, pro-queer, and anti-incarceration organization um, called Flat Out, um, who's involved with the decarceration efforts and opposing prison expansion. So we've got her to talk about these um, Victorian bail laws. But you know, we will um, go into some headline news first. But yeah, that's what's coming up on the show.
0: Yeah, so one other headline news story, and this is, um, I've just been drawing, I'm drawing this sort of report on what I've been kind of observing on social media, and also some reporting that has been done within Green Left, but we've um, we'll, we've been covered we've covered this previously, um, Blockade Australia has actually been having its week of climate action. Blockade Australia is a non-violent direct action environmental group, and so from from June, um, I think from I think it was from June, from June 27 to July 2nd, um, they basically there's a week, um, blockade. Australia activists have organised a week of re- disruptive kind of um, non-violent direct action, and to give you a bit of a, a example a report of what sort of happened at one kind of action more than um they've been met with very kind of severe kind of police repression in fact one protester had actually already sort of had his um house invaded um Raided by police in advance, and I guess more than one recent protest involved. Um, and reporting from Green Left involved more than a hundred protesters defying the police to stop traffic in the CBD on June 27 for just under an hour. You know, activists pulled construction areas, rubbish bins and milk crates out on the streets to slow police and traffic down. At one stage, police kettled protesters but did not make mass arrests. But by the end of the day, they had arrested 11 uh, 11 people. One 22-year-old activist from Lismore had locked herself to the steering wheel of her car, blocking multiple lanes of the Sydney Harbour Hire. Now, you know, one of the, you know, the big political context for this action as sort of being, um, as the spokesperson, James Wood, has been quoted here, we are facing a catastrophic, um, climate collapse, the biggest existential threat our species has ever known, and the system that we call Australia is driving us straight the point, par- past the point of no return there's no possibility of meaningful change within this system Australia has been designed to operate as a project of extraction and exploitation and without a total upheaval of this project we have absolutely no chance of survival so the client yeah this is these actions have been motivated by you know the inaction of you know um, of you know our political leaders and of of capitalism to address the climate crisis yeah I feel like we
5: probably, our audience here at 3CR and Green Left is um, a bit further left than this, but it's one of the things I think it's useful to still have these actions happening because I think they were organized pre-election. But that quote um, that you just read is really prescient or really relevant still to the Labour government, right? Because I don't know how broad this sense is in general, but There was definitely a sense on the more center-left end of things that, you know, the the Labor government gets elected and all of a sudden some issues are not as pressing anymore. But climate change especially is always going to be extremely pressing, especially as we're going to talk about with Sue, with the Labor Party's kind of pushes towards coal and like expanding fossil fuel mining and stuff, following through with a bunch of like very strongly opposed projects that the coalition government put into place. And like, there is a need for further protest, right? like um, same with uh I expect we'll talk about it a bit later, um, but same with you know the refugee. Um, movement, the pro-refugee movement, there's a need for further protest on all of this stuff. And I was talking to somebody earlier this week, uh, I think it was in relation to the abortion issue more than anything else, but they made a good point that is basically a lot of times mass protest movements or protest movements are reasonably good at Responding to actions, to events, but there's generally the further need for kind of incremental change or less obvious change that people find a bit more difficult to keep up with in some ways. It's a bit hard to keep up the momentum in some cases when you're talking about more incremental changes and not responding to any particular event, which I think is one of the benefits, sadly, to the climate movement is that there's never really going to be a point ever again, probably, where there isn't some immediate action, some immediate event that can spark a protest. You know, we're going to keep having more fires or more floods and storms and all of that sort of thing. And like, there's always going to be something to respond
0: to, Um sadly. <laughs> Just one thing just to add, um, before we move on to the first interview for our program, which will be a very kind of important and pertinent discussion in relation to this. One thing I've just been hearing reports about on social media is for some of the protesters from Blockade Australia who've been arrested, it does appear, this does appear to be a bit new, um, from in terms of the extent of the police sort of repression, Mm. but the police are sort of actively I don't – I'm not a lawyer and I'm not aware of the – I don't know about the laws that have sort of been applied, but I can just tell you what sort of is being – what is happening in practice. But basically, some activists have been sort of, you know, basically have to – they've been sort of have to pledge this sort of almost non association in a sense. So basically – if you're for some of the blockade, um, Australia protesters, they've been told that they're not allowed to associate as part, I think as part of potentially their bail conditions, um, to basically not associate with, you know, some of their colleagues that they might've been like the other blockade Mm. Australia activists that they might've been, um, might've been, um, might've been protesting with, like, for example, like for example, if me and Ari and Chloe were sort of protesting together, we got arrested, um, one of our bowel conditions would, could have been, oh yes, I'm not allowed to see or interact with Chloe mm. and, uh, and Ari. And so those are actually some of those, um, those conditions are actually being pushed onto activists, which is actually a bit, is a real concern. And I think it is a real civil liberty issue. But yeah, we'll, we'll follow this more, um, in terms of what I mean. But those are the reports I've just been hearing on social media from different activists who've been involved. <laughs>
4: Well, we're going to go to a quick break and we'll stay tuned because we'll be back with an interview with Sue Bull um, on the energy gas crisis. Their fixation on profit is putting so many lives and communities at
2: risk, communities that are contributing the least to the increase of climate change, but are facing the worst of its impacts. We have had enough. We need a fair transition to renewable energy now so that every person has the right to be
1: able to live safely, wherever they may be.
6: 3CR Radiothon 2022. Keep community
3: strong. To donate, call 03 9419 8377 or donate online at 3cr.org.au. Keep
1: community strong.
5: We've got a common enemy. The same government that locks up these refugees just behind us here at the Park Hotel is the same government that's going for our rights, trying to attack the very limited gains that casuals have. And so when union activists take up the cause of refugees amongst their fellow workers, it's not an act of charity. It's about building workers' united self-defense mechanism, understanding that we're all part of the same battle.
6: You're listening to Radical Radio on 3CR. 855 on your AM dial, 3CR digital, and podcasting and streaming on 3cr.org.au. 3CR Radiothon
3: 2022 3CR, keep community strong.
4: 3CR Radiothon fundraiser, June
3: 2022. To donate, call 03 9419 8377 or
6: donate online at 3cr.org.au. 3CR Radiothon 2022, keep community strong.
5: Welcome back to Green Left Radio on 3CR 855 AM. Uh, We are joined by Sue Ball, a long-time climate activist involved with the Geelong Renewables Not Gas campaign and a member of Socialist Alliance's national executive. We've got Sue on to talk about the energy and gas crisis. And um, Sue's written a couple of great articles on the topic for uh, Green Left. So thank you for joining us, Sue.
7: Hi, thank you.
5: Um, so, a few weeks ago, uh, we mentioned one of your articles, in fact, the gas crisis is a fraud. And one of the points that you were making um, <clears throat> in that article was obviously that the gas crisis appears to be more like another incidence of price gouging from the private energy sector. Does that hold true for the energy crisis in general? And kind of, can you give an overview of the situation in regards to the companies involved?
7: Yeah, yeah. Like, like- Absolutely no question. I mean, I'm, I'm afraid that the whole the whole energy crisis, I think, is, is a fraud. But I also think that there's an enormous amount of gouging that goes on um, on every level. But in this particular case, there's four main companies um, in Australia that are involved with gas uh, in terms of the exportation of it. And they're BHP, Exxon, Shell, Santos and Origin. And they are making multi-billion dollars worth of profit out of gas and indeed they're part of the process of course of the gouging, which means that what they're doing is that the shortage internationally has meant that they can sell gas at top dollar, ignoring the needs of the domestic market. So they're exporting where they can make huge profits and bad luck that the gas is found on Australian Territory and that we need it in particular in Victoria um, because we're, we're the biggest gas-using state. Um, we're the biggest gas-using state at this point in time. And we need the gas for domestic purposes, but too bad we, we're not actually significant in terms of the profit that they can make. So that's really the background of, of what's going on at the moment.
4: Oh, so it's Chloe here as well, um, doing this interview with Ari. Um, I guess there has been a bit of movement on this on the climate issue from the Albanese government. Um, what what are they actually proposing to do about this crisis?
7: Well, they've been able to intervene through AEMO, which is the um, um, the government supported body, the Australian Energy. Um, the Australian Energy Group. And they've been able to intervene and actually get the gas companies to hold back, to some extent, the increase in their um, charges to the Australian community. Um, but that's only seen as a very short-term fix. Like, the Albanese governments and AEMO themselves have said that they will return to um, um, a free market situation. So whilst there has been a short-term intervention to keep the the gas from hitting the the top dollar that was expected on the Australian market, um, that's actually only seen as a short-term fix. There are no long-term strategies in place to provide for a fairer share at the domestic level.
5: Um, in your more recent article for Green Left, uh, "Energy Crisis: Time to Talk Seriously About Public Ownership," you point out that um, while some people are calling for a windfall profit tax, further left voices are uh, kind of coming out against the the general failed policies <laughs> of uh, privatisation. Can you give like a bit of a background on the kind of the privatisation situation with the energy market and? Um, I mean, it's probably obvious to a lot of people at this point why it's failed, but maybe some of the less obvious reasons why it's a failed policy.
7: Yeah, yeah, well, so you've got to sort of go back to the 1990s to have a look at what's happened in Australia. And Victoria is probably the most interesting, well, the most dire in some ways. So if you look at the situation in Victoria, and, and you know, it, to be honest, The price range that was going to happen in New South Wales and Queensland was worse. But in Victoria, we've got a much higher usage of gas. And it's a an historical anomaly, if you like, in that gas was very cheap in Victoria, originally because of Bass Strait. But so if you look at the whole history of what's gone on here, you see that the Kennett government of the 1990s decided to use, um, to, to basically offload all of the um, gas and uh, coal-producing companies, which are all government-owned, and sell them off relatively cheaply into private hands. So that's been the background here. Now, this happens in a context of neoliberalism. So what you see worldwide from the 80s onwards is this idea that the market will get a better price for the consumer... If we put everything into private hands. So that's been the argument. I mean, mm. for those of us on the left, we knew damn well that it was just a way of actually increasing the profits of the private sector. Yeah. But that's all it's ever been about. So here, you see the Kennett government selling off all the gas fields, uh, sorry, the, the um, coal fields, gas, etc. Now, of course, on one level, you look at it and go, well, you know, we don't really want brown coal anymore anyway. <laughs> I mean, was that, that was sort of one of the debates that happened at the time. But but all of us on the left knew damn well that it was just a get-rich-quick scheme for, for big business. Mm. And what it's meant is that right around Australia there's been some level of handing over uh, energy to the private sector and therefore, in actual fact, increasing the amount that people like ourselves pay, uh, receive... And and But at the same time, taking it completely out of public control so that, um, you know, at no stage could we, the public, say, well, look, we want to get out of brown coal and we want you to put forward transitional plans that mean that the workers in those industries get a good deal as you get rid of those industries, you shut down those industries, and you transition them into um, renewable industries. So we lost that control. Almost completely in Victoria in the nineteen nineties, and to some extent right around the
4: country. Hmm. Yeah, oh, you are really <laughs> gonna, you're going to ask a follow-up question.
5: Well, I mean, Kenneth did privatise basically everything um, in Victoria. It's been a lot of problems, but following up on the, your article, uh, as socialists, we do call for nationalisation of the energy industry and putting aside the the political situation on that issue how realistic is it and like what would the practical steps be that could be taken in that direction
7: Yeah, no, i mean like really that's that's the question of the minute isn't it Mm. (laughs) like on, on the left you know we're always accused of being pie in the sky you've got these great ideas about people owning things and Democratically sharing and da da da. We've always been accused of that, mm. but I think that what this has shown, like this crisis has shown, first of all, the fact that Labor did decide to intervene shows that shows that governments can. Mm. So they didn't intervene for very long, but it shows that it can be done. So that's one thing. That's one, you know, um, one thing that just shows that it's possible. But the second thing that shows is that you had all sorts of bourgeois commentators like Ken Henry coming out and saying, oh, well, look, these companies now are getting this massive profit. At the very least, that profit should be returned to the public and be reinvested for our benefit. So, or to bring, you know, prices down, you know, whatever it happens to be. Mm. So that's another thing. So it's a very conservative bureaucrat, a person with a bureaucratic background saying, well, look, you know, that, that profit actually belongs to the people. So <laughs> that's another thing. So you, what you're beginning to see is conservative forces or bourgeois forces saying, you say, well, actually, this isn't fair. <laughs> it's got to come back into public... Some level of it's got to come back into public hands. So you see that. So what, the reason why I mention those is that that's a sign that this can be done. The governments can do this. Now from our point of view, just to bring it back into public hands isn't enough. So if you consider that all, you know, coal for instance, in Victoria once was owned by the government, like it was owned by the um, you know, various, sometimes corporatised, but it was still publicly owned, uh, that's good, but that's not enough. Mm. Because what we want is that it's, it's owned, yes, by the public, but that we have a democratic control over it, which we never had previously. So in the past, these were public corporations, but they did not operate for the benefit of the workers or the community. So Hazelwood's your classic example. When the company that owned it, Angers, um began to, you know, really lose a lot of money because it was going to require a huge upgrade. They basically just shut it down. <laughs> Too bad that it had caused major pollution problems for the community. You know, It had a fire, the longest industrial fire in Victorian history, um, um, and so it owed huge amounts on that level to the community. There had been numerous generations of workers working there and that they got almost nothing when it shut down. Too bad about that, and so we'd say, yes, bring it into public hands, but let's have it democratically controlled by workers in the community. And that's the difference with what people like us are saying, and what, um, you know, the Ken Henry's, for instance, of the world might, well, he he doesn't even say this, but what Mm. those bourgeois forces are saying. And I think it's possible, and that's why I wrote that article, and many, many people like us think that that's possible, it can be done even in society as it is now.
4: Mm, closing Hazelwood, um, just reading an article by Green Left a few years ago, it actually slashed Victoria's climate pollution by 12 million tonnes, which is about, I think you said about 10%. <laughs> it's really yes. ridiculous. Mm. Yes.
7: Like, you know, brown coal is just filthy. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. Sadly, sadly, the Latrobe Valley contributed massively to the emissions that were, you know, being ignored at the time, but, you know, it's, it's filthy. There's no, there's nothing that justifies continuing to use brown coal.
5: Mm. And maybe to divert from our plan slightly, um, you mentioned that the left does get criticised often as having this sort of pie-in-the-sky idea, you know, talking about transition to 100% renewable energy or about democratic control of these systems or whatever. But the alternative often seems to me way less realistic, I guess. Like Peter Dutton at the moment has very much switched to pushing nuclear energy and that is fairly common on the the right or especially on the sort of the slightly more climate aware right. But that sort of process would take ages to set up, wouldn't it? And it's not like it's actually clean. No! <laughs> That's
7: the shocking thing. Like, Every expert that you read talks about a 10- to 20-year start-up for a nuclear industry. Mm. And, in fact, I heard Richard Miles talking the other day. You know, he's the defence minister these days. He's also the local member here in Cryo, And that they're all very worried that this AUKUS agreement, which is for nuclear-powered submarines, they're really worried about, well, where, where's that... The industry going to come from to get this submarine up and happening now you know we don't want the bloody submarine in the first place you know let's not even go there but but yes so without a nuclear industry can they actually get these subs happening and you can tell that even people like Miles are going i don't know if this is a goer because they know damn well it's a 10 to 20 year startup for any aspect of the nuclear industry. And that's huge amounts of money mm. that's just invested in, you know, as we know, an industry that is terrifying. Like the prospects of that industry, yeah, and the waste from that industry. Just the amount of poisoning that happens from places like Roxby Downs alone um, in terms of the environment and in terms of the miners who work there it's actually unknown because they refuse to measure it, but we we know that it is a really dangerous industry, and people mm. die regularly from this industry. Yeah. So you've got both sides, the poison chalice on one hand, and also a huge amount of money and years to just actually get it going.
5: Yeah. I've seen people talking generally on the kind of, basically on the question of why does the, why does conservatives tend to push nuclear energy? And the point that a lot of people make is that you can't mine wind or sunshine, but you can certainly mine uranium. Wow. The
7: profit. This is the whole thing. You know, and this is why renewables are not necessarily a popular alternative to big business, because... Mm. They can't see the profits that they can make out of it on this giant scale. In fact, the only real renewable profits that they're actually interested in at the moment are the hydrogen ones, because mm. hydrogen you know involves you know all this double handling, yeah. um, essentially. Um, so they're all you, you find so many of them. and They're all talking about hydrogen, and I think it's because there's far more profits involved. Mm. Yeah.
5: Well, I think we're probably coming toward the end of the interview here. Um, Did you have any final thoughts, anything else you wanted to add?
7: Look, just a quick one. Uh, I really do think that we've got to put our heads together and start putting forward proposals about public ownership and what it would really mean because I think we're going to get a much greater hearing now and it won't just be about energy, it'll be about all sorts of things. Mm. And I think we've got to inspire workers and unions and the environmental movement into working together to work at how we can do these things and how we can make demands that can be won now.
5: Yeah. Yeah, agreed. Well, thanks very much for joining us, Sue. Um, it's been really good. And um, we will I expect to have you on again to talk more about these sorts of things and nationalization and that sort of stuff. So
7: yeah. Yep. Great. Right. Okay. Bye bye. Bye bye. So and.
5: we were just interviewing uh, Subal about the energy and gas crises and, um, you know, what the what the left proposes to do about it and, like, what seems to actually be going on, which, um, spoiler alert, is price gouging, pra- price gouging by capitalists.
4: Yeah, and I was thinking we'll maybe go to a song and we'll be back um, with more news headlines and I'm just going to play something by... Uh, well, that was suggested by Matt Ward, who puts together these really um, great political albums for Green Left. And um, it's going to play a song called Paradise by Golden Oak from their album Room to Grow. And just to give you a bit of background, um, it's – well, uh, if you if you remember Jeff Bezos, the Amazon founder um, – in the in the former Spanish colony of Texas, he blasted into space from his ranch on July 20th. I think it was last year that he did that. And then he thanked his, the exploited workers for funding the trip. And he said something like, when you, can, when you get into space, you can see the Earth's atmosphere. It's so fragile and thin-looking. Um, and so, you know, we do have to take care of this planet. Um, but the answer wasn't to reduce emissions. He, he suggested that we move all heavy industry and all polluting industry off off the earth and operate it in space. And his fellow billionaire, Saudi Prince Um Abdullah bin Salman, vowed to drill every last molecule of oil. And this US folk band, Golden Oak, blasted this this type of talk, um, this vandalism. And this is um yes, yeah, so this is one of their songs from that climate themed album, Paradise. <laughs>
3: Say paradise, it ain't that far Across the Midwest, through the Great Plains Second home or a broke-down car Same stories, different faces But this money isn't all that it seems To buy nothing but a big house Or a fence to lock away our dreams Here's to hoping they were nothing they will not be.
1: So yeah. All these lies
4: green left on 3CR, and you were just listening to Paradise by Golden Oak, and we were going to go to some news headlines, but I think we've run out of time, uh, so we're going to go to an interview. Jacob, we're going to announce. Yeah,
0: so just. In- um, so just introduce this interview, um, we recorded this interview on
4: Tuesday, but as we sort Take
0: of, your mic um, as we, oh, so just to introduce the interview that we're going to be playing shortly, we recorded this interview on Tuesday, it is with um, a member, with Kamala Emanuel, who is a member of Social Science, she is also an abortion provider and a long-time campaigner for abortion rights, and so we're going to, we've had, me and Ari had a bit of discussion with her about, you know. The kind of what kind of response we should have to the Roe versus Wade overturn and you know the general kind of situation for abortion rights internationally and what we need to be fighting for in the Australian context so listen, hope um, listeners enjoy the interview
5: and welcome back to Green Left Radio uh, we are joined by uh, Kamala Emanuel who is a longtime time uh, abortion activist and um member of Socialist Alliance. Thanks for joining us, Kamala.
2: Pleasure. Thanks for having me.
5: All right. So, um, as I'm sure we've all heard and we've just talked about, the U.S. Supreme Court has overruled, overturned um, Roe v. Wade, So, and we're here with Kamala to talk a bit about what are the implications in the U.S. and kind of how does it relate to the Australian context? So, um, Jacob, do you want to go to the first question?
0: Yeah, so I guess the first kind of question I wanted to sort of ask you, um, Kamala, is I guess as a long-time, you know, abortion rights campaigner, what can you comment about the significance of the overturning of Roe v. Wade in the United States?
2: Thanks very much. And I, I should have said um, when I was saying day before, I'm, I'm coming to you from Mianjin, which is um, Turrbal and Jaguar country in Brisbane. Um, so what what we can say about this um, this ruling is that it is not unexpected and it is not the last attack that we're going to see, but it's devastating. So um, for 50 years since the Roe v. Wade um, established the constitutional protection of abortion for for women and pregnant people across the United States, uh, the conservatives who were opposed to abortion have re- used a range of tactics to try to uh, take back that right or to undermine it in various ways. And, and, um, you know, in the 80s, it took the form of clinic bombings and attacks and throwing acid in the faces of women who were presenting for care, uh, you know, murdering and assassinating abortion providers um, and and numerous other kind of physical attacks. Uh, So that was, you know, one set of tactics. There has also been this sort of both this kind of joint judicial and legal kind of restriction. So you could say uh, attacking abortion access cut by cut by cut by cut. So it has been that there are already um, numerous states where uh, people who have got uh, you know public health insurance, the Medicaid or Medicare uh, for their health protect health insurance in general are not allowed to use that to um, pay for an abortion should they need it so so that has already put um, a safe abortion care uh, out of the hands of, of many, many people across the United States. There have been other attacks that have happened over the years that were things like um, a whole lot of restrictions and uh, on the ways clinics could operate. I'll give you an example uh, requiring that, uh, a, you know, clinic, which they're not, they're, many of them are not sort of very well resourced, they're not very rich, they're just services that exist, requiring them to buy and have functioning um, neonatal intensive care facilities in the abortion facility. When they're performing abortions, there are never babies born in these facilities, but they're expected to have a resuscitation equipment just in case. Um, so so uh, or there's a whole lot of these things that are just regulations to restrict access and force clinics to close. You know, it might be the number of storeys you're allowed to have a clinic operating out or or width of the doors or whatever it might be, that that, um, regulation after regulation have have cut the capacity of abortion facilities to stay open. So this is just the the culmination of of these. And it's been, again, it's been part of the long game of stacking, um, first of all, state legislatures, with um, legislators who are opposed to abortion who could line up these cases so that they 'd be firstly have have laws that were ready to go at the state level um, have laws that contravened this constitutional protection so that they would have to be taken to the um, to the Supreme Court to to be defended and and then simultaneously this process of stacking the Supreme Court with justices who are opposed to abortion and who would be prepared to um, To strike down Roe versus Wade, so this is many years in uh, in the making, um, a very deliberate process of of attacking uh, the the constitutional protection of the um, of of abortion access, and um, and you know including including uh, I might add um, Supreme Court. uh, judges, justices, um, who, when they were being confirmed, said that uh, Roe versus Wade was settled in law. So so they're basically people who were prepared to lie, to say, oh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't undermine it, you couldn't, um, but, but have just revealed their hand that, yes, of course, they were always going to do this. So um, so it is a huge attack. So uh, while, while there have been a, a, a attacks and, and so on, now all of a sudden there are nine states where abortion is banned and there are another what is it another 17 where where the um state governments have basically promised that they will bring in a, a, abortion bans and and there are lots of states where they're already you know um partial restrictions or you know quite onerous restrictions you know going from 15 weeks or or, or less where where you beyond that you can't access abortion so it's um it's dire and it's dire because it means that um a very very fundamental right which is of a person who's capable of becoming pregnant deciding whether or not they're going to continue a pregnancy once they are pregnant and and it, ultimately what it means is, is forced birth you know you, you don't get to decide anymore whether you can uh, whether it's up to you uh, to give birth to bring a, a baby into the world it's that that right is taken away from you and that's that's um more than half the population uh you know, uh, potentially uh, at at risk, um, you know, for, from the, the severe consequences of, of this legislation.
5: Yeah. One of my favourite descriptions I've heard of the, the quote-unquote pro-life movement is the pro-state-enforced pregnancy movement.
2: Yeah. Uh, yeah, it would be it's completely wrong to call them pro-life. It's, it's hmm. like a, there's just nothing pro-life about it because if you don't recognise the life of the woman who is pregnant or the pregnant person... Then, then, what life are you talking about? And of course, they don't care about you know. So, so many of these yeah. conservatives. Of course, there are exceptions, but so many of these um, legislators. Don't don't care what happens to the the baby once they're born. What kind of a life, what kind of a quality of life are they going to have adu- access to education or healthcare or or you know just you know what sort of life is it going to be? And of course this is the kind of reason that informs someone to make a decision to have a termination if they know they're not in a position to be able to to, to raise a child or, or even if they're not in a position to to continue a pregnancy whether it's for their health or because they can't afford the astronomical costs of of um. Of antenatal care and giving birth in the United States. When you know we yeah. think of of um you know having a baby, you know you can go to the public uh-huh. hospital and have your baby in, in, in the public hospital and get whatever care you need. That's mm. not what's going on in the United States.
5: Yeah, I remember I was born uh, four weeks premature, and uh, my mom tells me occasionally of when she was reading books about what to do. All of the U.S. books would include a section on how to declare bankruptcy and sell your house and stuff That's to right. afford the care.
1: Imagine so
5: that does. Follow into the next question though, which is basically the, the right wing or the, the anti abortion, um, <clears throat> movement, particularly the reg- religious right wing. They have this very, you know, definite tendency to talk about the sanctity of life, to talk about preserving life, that sort of thing. But obviously, when it comes to the actual policies, you know, they want to strip more money out of feeding kids out of schools. You know, they the Supreme Court, the, I think during the week before they overturned Roe v. Wade, um, <clears throat> ruled that the right to carry a firearm with you everywhere you go is uh, protected universally by the Constitution. And I've seen some people making jokes about the new pi- pipeline isn't, you know, birth to death. It's um, your life exists from conception to school shooting. Exactly. So obviously... The, like you said, the argument of pro-life is kind of, is nonsense. It's essentially facetious. What is, what do you think the actual motivation for this sort of the anti-abortion right is when it comes to controlling access to abortion or completely um, denying access to reproductive health?
4: Yeah,
2: look, there, there are lots of elements of that. And I I totally agree with this idea of like, well, just with the the importance of, recognising the hypocrisy and um, the double standard involved in the same political forces opposing abortion, being, being the same people who oppose um, uh, banning assault rifles, uh, assault weapons, um, you know, promoting um, gun use and um, and promoting the death penalty. I mean, so, so there are a whole, a whole lot of these kind of very serious inconsistencies. Um, hmm. But I, I think and- that... I, If I could just
5: follow that really quickly.
2: Mm -hmm. Texas
5: has proposed the death penalty for people getting illegal abortion.
2: (laughs) Yes. I mean, like, seriously, how much more absurd does it need to be to demonstrate that it is not for those political forces, those um, organised political forces, it's not and never has been about protecting any form of right to life. And I I, I draw a distinction between the organised political forces who are using Um, abortion and and various other um, issues to to build a political constituency so they've got a base of support from which to to launch their whole project. I would draw a distinction between them and... Individuals caught up in it individuals who uh, might maybe they go to church, maybe they mm. heard at church that um you know God hates abortion that 's what they think is the case and and so they they really they really genuinely do think that it's all about uh, protecting babies and and making sure that that um, life is protected so I would draw a distinction because I, I think that there are, uh, are people who I would think of as misguided more than um, anything else mm, who yeah. follow that course um, uh, and um uh, yeah. So, and but, and, and the, many of these churches deliberately allow themselves to be used to be, you know, places where these right-wing forces can build their bases of support. And and the project that they're trying to cohere support for, you know, it's, it's got on the one hand, you know, people who are you know crazy about their guns, that's what they love. Others who are, are opposed to abortion rights. Um, others who are opposed to queer rights or trans people. Others, you know, there's sort of a whole range of things that come together. Um, Many of, these, many of these people may not actually have otherwise supported the rest of this right-wing neoconservative project, the the whole neoliberalism of, of attacking um, of free trade, um, attacking regulation um, and, and peeling back all our rights and, and privatising everything. Not everyone would support that in and of itself. And so there are, there are certainly these bases of support, particularly in the... Um, uh, for people opposed to abortion, they, they build up this base of support for a right-wing economic and political proje- project. Um, yeah, that I, I'm not sure that there would be that support for it otherwise, because they're, they're very anti people. But it allows them to uh, to position themselves as the champion of good, you know, whether it's family values or uh, you know babies being born or, um, or, or various other things. And, and so I think it's it's quite manipulative and um, it allows them to appeal to emotion rather than to say oh really what we want is to make the rich richer <laughs> and um, and screw the rest of you uh, but we can't say that so it's all about the babies
0: yeah Sorry, i just moved it there and i guess the next um, the next kind of question that kind of follows to that is i guess what are your sort of some of your cuz what are some of your comments on abortion rights um for women in Australia? Because, like, obviously, I mean, obviously the situation in Australia for abortion is much better than it is in the United States. In fact, when you look at the United States, it almost seems like they're going back to the sort of dark ages. But, of course, we don't necessarily have perfect laws um, and perfect sort of access uh, to abortion. So I guess I want to sort of, especially as someone who's been campaigning actually on this issue, can you give an overview of know, the situation for abortion rights for women in Australia?
1: Mm.
2: What is its risks
0: and limitations?
1: Mm,
2: mm. I mean, I, I think you're right. And I think um, it's important, as, as important as it is to recognise what's going on in the US and to recognise that uh, that it is a threat to abortion access around the world when the, you know, the, the leading dominant country of the, on the planet um, enacts something so retrograde. Like, yes, that will embolden Anti-abortion forces all around the world, including Australia. However, I think we, on the one hand, should recognise that things aren't um, kind of immediately dire here on, on account of that, um, but they're not as good as they should be. So, the, whereas in the in the US, it was what 73 that um, Roe versus Wade established the um, constitutional uh, right to privacy that that protected uh, abortion. Australia we we never did that right so it's been state by state piecemeal about 50 the same kind of 50 years has been just gradual legal reform and, and and so it's only been in the last few years that the last states have actually got abortion to be legal and this has been the outcome of you know years of hard patient work partly campaigning in the streets partly the kind of behind behind the scenes kind of campaigning that's happened you know in in the um the states and territories so, so we've we've sort of much more recently tasted the victory of oh gee, abortion's legal now, um, and so it's much, uh, it, it's not it's not at all going to be any kind of easy thing to have that rolled back. Which is not to say that you know state liberal party branches and and um, uh, you know federal liberal party members and whatever. Aren't opposed to abortion, like they, they still do take to their state conferences motions opposing abortion and and calling for it to be banned and, and all of this sort of thing. But a lot of that um, a lot of that is much more about shoring up that right wing conservative um, religious base um, for the Liberal Party and its project, rather than because they can see themselves actually enacting any of that stuff anytime soon. Um, the truth is, every time you know, in the last the last sort of forty fifty years, attempts to Get rid of Medicare funding for abortion, or, or a whole lot of things, has been has been overturned, has has been hasn't been able to be um, enacted. So it's it's very unlikely to see that. But what we do see is unequal access across Australia. So partly it's state by state. Different states have got different um, gestational limits. So if you go to in WA, it's 20 weeks. If it's um, if you're in Queensland, it's 22. If you're in Victoria, it's 24. Like, so different states have different cut-offs. Um, Which is obviously not fair. And, and across the states, by and large, apart from South Australia, where access through the public hospitals has been mandated because it wasn't allowed to be provided outside the public hospital systems, which meant that you could get your abortion for free, actually, um, in, in South Australia, uh, around the rest of the country, on the whole, there's a lot of, um, you know, a bit of a lucky dip if you're in the postcode where your local health area, hospital and health area, um, Provides abortion in in the hospital or not, and um, it, it's a lot to do with does your GP know the pathway to refer you, or or is there some kind of an arrangement with the the hospital and a private provider where you can get your abortion paid for? So the cost of abortion is disproportionately. And you know unequally unevenly shared around the country some people are able to access their um the abortion they need through the public hospital system. Some people can get some or all of it paid for by medicare and some people are paying hundreds of dollars four hundred five hundred dollars and that's just for five hundred and fifty maybe up to um up to twelve weeks of pregnancy, and then thousands of dollars on top um you know for 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 later weeks of, of gestation. So um, so there's this very, very unequal, unfair thing going on in terms of the cost of abortion, um, which is obviously a very working-class issue. If you're working-class or poor um, and you've got to try to find the money for this sort of thing, that, that, can, that can make it out of your reach. Um, also for regional women, uh, like one of the main private providers of abortion care um, around Australia... Closed their clinic in Townsville, Rockhampton on the Gold Coast, and in Newcastle last year year before last year, last year. Um, and and so for regional women where those were the only services available it 's meant like in Queensland, women are traveling so far to, to obtain a surgical abortion if they need one i mean on the on the plus side, I guess just kind of to skirt around a little bit um, uh, medical abortion is has become more accessible since um, uh, since it's available through telehealth so so many people can access medication abortion where you take take some tablets to to induce an abortion um and and it is possible for some people to access that by telehealth so that's a bit of an equalizer but it's it, you know it's not everyone's preference to have to be awake and aware through the whole procedure that's like bringing on a miscarriage um some people would prefer to be able to you know, have an anaesthetic, off to sleep, wake up and the, the, the thing's completed. Um, and that's not readily accessible everywhere. Um, you can't just, you know, know that you can be referred to your local public hospital and have it provided. So I think that leaves us a lot of openings for where we need to go to make abortion accessible Um uh at, at, and not just settle for it being free, uh, legal, because if it's not free and it's not accessible, then there's a whole sway of the population who um, have to, you know, either can't access it at all, or else have to, um, you know, forego other things uh, be- because they they can't afford it.
5: I think that's a really good point for sure. Like, and um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe uh, Western Australia's abortion law still requires that. A uh, person seeking an abortion needs two doctors even before 20 weeks.
1: That's right. And yeah, so, right.
5: like you were saying, as much as there is limited access in regional areas, it's in some cases finding just the number of health professionals that you need to could be difficult.
2: Oh, it's terrible. I've met women who have um, who have like I'm the fifth doctor they've gone to for their referral. I, mm. I, I used to work in in um, uh, in services in, in WA and. You know that people, when when doctors refuse to to provide the referral, I mean, what do they think someone's going to do? Especially if you're in a small town, hmm. um, it becomes this. Like I've I've had patients who've be, you know become outside the gestation limit of the person who might have been able to provide them with a termination, but but they're now so far into their second trimester because. Their first doctor wouldn't allow them, or, or someone whose who's, uh, doctor said, "Oh yeah, well, I'll just refer you to the hospital, and they they'll take care of that for you." And then by the time they got their antenatal appointment, there was an antenatal clinic appointment. They're not going to, they don't do terminations. Um, just this, the runaround that people can get mm. um, is, um, you know, they're they're. they're um obstacles that were deliberately created. Like when that nineteen ninety eight legislation got enacted in, in WA uh, that made it a bit more legal than it had been before, um it, they still it was a concession to the people opposed to abortion to include that two doctor rule. Um and it and they knew that it was going to be an extra obstacle. Um and they did it anyway.
5: Mm. And kind of following from that, I guess, is Obviously, we still do have limited access in Australia, particularly, mm-hmm. like you were saying, for you know more working class and rural areas. Mm-hmm. What changes need to be made, other than maybe some of the ones you've discussed? Mm-hmm. Uh, but what changes do you think need to be made to have like actual free um, access for everyone to abortion? Mm-hmm. Like, what is the ideal? What mm-hmm. changes need to be made to create a more ideal situation?
2: So we need to make sure that um, the Public hospitals. So, in the different states, they're run slightly differently, but whatever their area health services are called, they have to be obliged to establish um, facilities to provide abortion in 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 their area health service. And they can do it freestanding. They can do it inside the clinic. You know that that has to be a basic minimum. That there can't be such a thing as doctor rings hospital and says, "Oh hi, I have a patient who needs a termination," and the the um, doctor on the end of the line says, "Oh no, we don't do that here." That, that has to just be a thing of the past that has to just not ever happen ever again um and if there are not presently doctors able and willing to provide the services in the um in these hospitals they have to recruit them um, and train them and do everything that makes it possible uh to to provide these services in, in people's local area so do- so there's not such a thing as having to to you know drive for four hours because you, even though you're passing three hospitals on your way um to get to a, a service, um, you know, a city, a major metropolitan city that can provide you care. So that's, that's one thing. They should be establishing like this, the, um, this is generally at the state, but it can be a, 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 you know, a collaboration between state and federal governments would be able to establish a network of reproductive health hubs of, of care, you know, centres of excellence, um, at least in the major metropolitan areas and, and as soon as possible further, further af- afield than that, that, um, where you're, um, determinations can be provided and 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 why not make it where you can get your contraception and your pap smear and your sexual health screening but whether they are freestanding or or independent or whatever in in um most of the most of the states over the years have had um uh, sexual health services where you could go in and get your hiv test and, and you know the rest of your sexual health screen and you could be given a number so that you don't have to divulge your name you've got your privacy it doesn't meet up with the rest of your health record so when you later on go to you know the hospital for some other thing it's not just sitting there on your file and and you know you, you your new significant other doesn't just sort of see that sitting there by accident somehow or whatever so so protect people's privacy um uh, make it, make, yeah. Make these services freestanding like the sexual health services if, um, you know, if that's appropriate in the area and recruit dedicated staff who are going to provide the care without judgment, with compassion, with respect, with dignity and, um, and with excellence. Yeah, make it free.
0: That. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Thanks for that, Kamala. And I guess um, we're, we're probably time to conclude the kind of interview now, but I guess do you have any kind of final comments that you'd like to make? I mean, especially any sort of final comments you might like to make on... You know, the whole, um the whole US, um, United States situation.
2: Yeah, I'd, I'd like to just um, make the point that reproductive justice is bigger than abortion care because um, very, very often uh, other elements of reproductive justice kind of get left behind. So I, I won't go into that in detail, but just just to um, to say that there is a lot more that needs to be done to make sure that every person who wants to become pregnant, maintain a pregnancy, avoid a pregnancy, end a pregnancy, uh, someone who's got, uh, you know, abnormalities in their health during their pregnancy, like all that care that that all needs to be better, um, and and there needs to be even someone you know it's like someone can be miscarrying and still not treated with dignity and respect. So there's a there's a long way to go for a lot of these things, but my feeling is that out in the streets we need to be pushing forward to demand that abortion is free. Now my my firm belief is that the one of the best ways we can demonstrate our solidarity with the women in the United States, women and pregnant people in the United States who are facing this threat to their abortion access. Is to fight here for abortion to be free, safe, legal, and accessible on demand without apology. Because every new place that that becomes a reality becomes its own beacon of um of hope and a, and a good example uh, to to shine back to the rest of the world that this is possible. It's not rocket science. It can be done.
1: Mm,
5: yeah. Well, thanks very much for joining us, Kamala. Um,
2: mm, my pleasure. Thanks for having
5: me. Very. It's been really good, enlightening, good stuff. Harry.
2: Yeah. And, um, thank you. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah.
4: Carry on. You're back with us on Green Left Radio on 3CR, and you were just listening to an interview with Kamala Emanuel, who's a member of Socialist Alliance, an abortion provider, and long-term, a uh, long-time campaigner for abortion rights. And you know, she was um, gave a very in-depth interview about what's going on um, in the in the United States with the overturning of Roe v. Wade. Um, we're going to go to a song by War on Women. Uh, they are a political punk feminist band from Baltimore in the U.S., and they really capture this protest spirit, um, talk this thing about equal rights that go beyond gender lines. And here is their song, Pro-Life.
5: back you are listening to green left radio on 3cr 855 a.m and we were just playing pro-life by uh war on women i guess in solidarity with the situation in the u.s so um something i wanted to mention quickly before we get into the activist calendar is that we're doing well at the radiothon it's we just got some quite good news that um the breakfast shows are getting really close to our goal um, and the whole station in general is getting pretty close to our goal. And just like a reminder that you can still donate even though it's, you know, sort of after the Radiothon theoretically and like should be mentioned more often probably. I don't – maybe other shows mention it more often than we do. But you can still donate to 3CR outside of Not the phone right? <laughs> uh, you know, you can go to 3cr.org.au slash donate. You can nominate us. You can nominate whoever you want. You can phone in at 94198377 or you can text donate to zero four double eight eight zero nine eight five five, and get some details on how to do that. And, of course, we're Green Left. We are a slightly separate organization from 3CR. And so you can go to greenleft.org.au slash support to subscribe to the... Um, the online or in, you know, physical copy newspaper that we produce for as little as $5 a month for the online thing. Or you can go to, uh, greenleft.org.au slash donate to give a a one-off donation or, you know, support the fighting fund, that sort of stuff. Help us, help us all keep going. You know, us don't want to blow our own horn too much, but like Green Left and 3CR are both really important organizations to exist. I think it's great to have these alternative views. And these kind of alternative perspectives on what's going on. <clears throat> but without further ado, let's launch into the activist calendar. So, uh, first thing is tomorrow, that's Saturday the 2nd of July, uh, we have a Defend Abortion Rights Rally at 12pm at the State Library, um, and hopefully we'll see everybody there, because that is, of course, a big thing at the moment. Mm. <laughs> um on Sunday, uh, July 3rd, we have a protest, which is a uh, rally in March for Julian Assange, which is 11 a.m. State Library. Um, and then we have a protest against government Islamophobia and house demolitions in India, and that's 1 p.m. at the State Library. Uh, Monday, on July 4th, we have the NIDOC uh, flag raising ceremony, which that's um, National Aborigines and Islanders uh, day of Observance Committee, sorry, um, and that is 9:30 a.m. at Fed Square um, in the city. And then we have a vigil. This is vigil. This is also July 4th. Break the chains of U.S. Empire. That's 12 noon at the noon at the U.S. Consulate. Um, Tuesday, July 5th, we have an online forum after the Colombian elections: prospects for democracy and human rights. July 8th, we have the Victorian NIDOC March. That's 12 noon at the Aboriginal Health Service, uh, 196 Nicholson Street, Fitzroy. Uh, Tuesday, July 12th, we have a book launch, uh, Asylum, a Socialist View of the Refugee Crisis, which is in-person and online uh, from 6.30, or we'll have food from 6 p.m. at the Resistance Centre, Level 5, 407 Swanson Street in the city, which is opposite the, the big green blob on the rmit building basically um tuesday july 19th we have an online discussion uh yasmin abdel magid uh 7 p.m uh that is on facebook and saturday july 30th we have uh the united climate rally 1 p.m state library swanson street
4: I do have something to add to that calendar. Yes. On Tuesday 19th of July at 5.30, we're, there's going to be a refugee rally titled Nine Years Too Long, End Offshore, Resettle Refugees Here, and that event is by the Refugee Action Collective, and will be... Uh, meeting at the State Library at 5.30 and then marching down. It's going to be like a candle, like, a, like it's going to be a light show, so we're going to be marching down to St. Paul's Cathedral, so it would be great to see everybody there.
5: Yeah, thank you. Um, and, yeah, if you want more details on that sort of stuff on all these events, um, with uh, some cultural events like movie screenings, um, some uh, art exhibitions, that sort of stuff that we've skipped over here, um, but if you want more details on all of this stuff, you can go to greenleft.org.au slash events, um, and you can filter by location, you can filter by date, uh, by like a date range, and you can get more detail on all of the stuff that we've mentioned here, like Zoom links where they're applicable or Facebook links, that sort of stuff, um, anything we didn't mention. So yeah, you sh- I encourage, in fact, everybody to go to our website, uh, greenleft.org.au slash events to find more details on that. And just go to the website in general for more news, opinions, analysis, that sort of thing, all from a generally left-wing and kind of eco-socialist perspective. Um, so we'll be joined shortly by, uh, Karen Fletcher from F- Flat Out to talk in part about the situation with Victoria's bail laws and kind of, uh, and, uh, protests and actions that they that at flat out they have about that and um, also partly the main campaign that they're involved with at the moment which is opposing which is called homes not prisons um, which is opposing basically prison expansion in victoria so i think we'll go to an announcement and then we'll be joined by karen fletcher when we get back so stick with us you are listening to green
6: left radio CR Radiothon 2022 Keep Community Strong We need your financial support to be
4: independent, community-controlled and focused on people rather than profits.
6: Your support
0: during Radiothon keeps the station strong and enables us to give voice to hundreds of people and issues for another year.
4: And remember, any amount you can afford makes a big difference and all donations over $2 are tax deductible.
3: 3CR
0: Radiothon, show your support
3: during June 2022. 3CR, keep community strong. 3CR Radiothon 2022. 3CR, keep community strong.
4: 3CR Radiothon fundraiser, June
3: 2022. To donate, call 03-9419-8377 or donate online at 3cr.org.au. 3CR Radiothon
6: 2022, keep community strong.
5: All right, and welcome back to Green Left Radio on 3CR 855 AM. We are joined by uh, Karen Fletcher, who's involved with the pro-woman, pro-queer and anti-incarceration organization Flat Out, who are they're involved in some decarceration efforts and opposing prison expansion. We've got her on to talk about uh, Victoria's bail laws, the problems therein, and the other main campaign that Flat Out's involved with, which I mentioned earlier, the Homes Not Prisons campaign. Thank you for joining us, Karen.
8: Great to be here. Thank you.
5: Um, So to start off with, can you tell us a bit about what are the current bail laws in Victoria and what are the problems with, what are the big problems
8: with those bail laws? Sure. Well, traditionally bail has been a mechanism whereby people who are charged with criminal offences can be released awaiting their trial. Uh, Traditionally, under Australian law, people have been presumed to be innocent until proven guilty in in a court case. But there have always been provisions under the law for people to be held in custody waiting for their trial if they pose a risk, particularly pose a risk of um, uh, to the community or pose a risk of leaving the jurisdiction before their trial. Um, but it's always been the responsibility of the state, the police, the prosecutors, to prove that there's such a risk exists. But in Victoria, in the last... Five years in particular, um, since some uh, high-profile cases, where particularly the case of Gargus who committed offences, killed people using a car in in Melbourne. Um, in recent years, the the onus of proving that people are a risk um, to the community has shifted, been shifted by um, by law changes to the bail laws, to the person accused. Uh, they have to prove that they don't pose a risk um, rather than the police having to prove that they do. So now in Victoria, there's a presumption that people will go to prison or that, that bail will be refused unless the person in court can prove that they don't pose a risk. And the result it has been that uh, an, an absolutely huge increase in the number of people who are being sent to prison uh, awaiting their trial um, for criminal offences because... So many people charged with criminal offences by the police um, don't have legal representation, have difficulty understanding the complexities of the bail laws and what they have to prove. Uh, And as a result, a lot of people are just um, being sent to prison with a presumption that uh, they should be in prison while they wait for their trial. Mm. Um, This has had a particularly big impact on um, women, Uh, and in in particular Aboriginal women, and we've seen a 440% increase in the number of um, Aboriginal women being sent to prison, being convicted of nothing and spending time in prison on demand. And the majority of those are never convicted of anything, uh, never sentenced to uh, a period of imprisonment. So they they serve their few weeks or few months on demand and then go to their trial and they're either acquitted or... Uh, um sentenced to a non-custodial sentence. So spending time in prison that they never should
4: have. Mm. Yeah, Karen, thanks. Um, yeah, I was, you know, it, it does disproportionately affect um, First Nations and yeah, I think I was reading um, some statistic that said something like the, uh, the Aboriginal women are actually some of the most, well, Aboriginal women here in Australia are some of the most incarcerated people on the planet. Um, which is, you know, just horrifying.
8: Um, yes, that's true. Uh, and yeah. Oh yeah, sorry. Go on. And increasing. I mean, that's yeah. the other thing. Uh, it's just going up and up. Um, it's absolutely a shame. A, 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 a shame to. I mean, it's happening in a lot of Australian jurisdictions, but in Victoria, it's particularly marked.
4: Yeah, and we. Um, I mean, we obviously you know, campaigning against these. And, you know, we just wanted to know or let our listeners know what sort of work and some of the campaigns that you're involved with or or aware of that seek to change the situation with with the onerous bail laws. Yes, sure. Well,
8: I think probably the best information um, that's available is through the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service on the bail laws. They have a campaign, Fix Victoria's Broken Bail Laws, uh, which people can... um, uh, sign a petition and get information on Val's website. So that's val, Uh And also on their website, there's a uh, briefing paper, Fixing Victoria's Broken Bail Laws, which has a lot of information, particularly about the way these bail laws are impacting Aboriginal people and particularly Aboriginal women. Um, so that's a good place to start. And then, as you mentioned in the introduction... There's a very related campaign that um, that flat Out is involved in, which is the Homes Not Prisons campaign, uh, which is a campaign against the expansion of Dame Phyllis Frost Correction Centre, which is the bi- the max big maximum security women's prison in Ravenhall in Melbourne, uh, which uh, the government is spending nearly two hundred million dollars uh, building a hundred and six extra beds to take it from five hundred odd beds to six hundred odd beds. Um, and we've got a campaign to stop that expansion. And it's related because the reason why they have to, they feel they have to expand the prison is because of the huge numbers of people that are being sent to prison, to, particularly to the women's prison, um, as a result of the changes to the bail laws. So it's a, a very related campaign to, to the bail laws.
5: Mm. Could you give us that URL again,
8: um, just to make sure everybody's got it? Yeah. That. so www. Vals, .vals, Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service, au. And then the Homes Not Prisons campaign also has a website with an open letter, mm. uh, which is, um, is uh, calling for uh, the government to spend the $200 million that they have um, allocated to the expansion of the prison on public housing. Because, uh, yeah. you know, the vast majority of people who are sent to prison, particularly women and kids who are sent to prison, are homeless. Um, when they are sent to prison and homeless on release, uh, and what we're putting forward is that a much better use of, uh, uh, of taxpayers' money would be to spend it on public housing and support for people in public housing. Um, it's much, much cheaper to house people, uh, than it is to put them in prison and mm. it has a much bigger impact on community safety. Mm. Um, jurisdictions that spend more on public housing and less on prisons are much safer, uh, because it's a, it's actually a crime prevention um, uh, mechanism to, you know, support people to live in the community and um, and live the lives that they want to, parent their kids uh, and, you know, get education and jobs and those sorts of things rather than just uh, taking people and sticking them in prison. So, yeah, we're asking for $200 million to be spent on 1,000 public housing units instead of uh, 106 prison beds
5: yeah exactly it's a real discrepancy as well in those numbers right that there's so much more public housing that could be built than beds added to a prison with the same amount of money and i believe that the expansion of uh dame phyllis uh what's it dame phyllis frost women prison is part of something like 1.8 billion dollars that the victorian government is putting into prison expansion too so like
8: that's it's, correct yeah, yeah it's
5: really at the tip of the iceberg in some ways
8: that's right. I mean, um, I am. I work at Flat Out, which is an organisation that supports women, trans and gender diverse people in prisons, mostly in women's prisons, although there are some trans women, shamefully, mm. kept in men's prisons. Um, so we are we are very focused on women. But as you said, the, the vast majority of people put in prison in Victoria are men, and they're you know just a year before. Uh, The budget 2018-19, yeah, nearly $2 billion was allocated to the the, Mm. um, expansion of all prisons in Victoria. And there's a massive prison, one of Australia's biggest prisons currently being built near Geelong, Chisholm Road. Um, And there's, you know, a new youth detention centre under construction. There's just massive prison building going on in Victoria. Mm. Uh, Whereas, you know... Public housing is still Victoria is the lowest allocation of funding to uh, public housing of any jurisdiction in Australia, and there's in, I think partly in response to these to these campaigns, the um, Victorian and housing campaigns in general, the Victorian government has launched a so-called big housing build, but the problem with problem with the big housing build is that it's not focusing on public housing. Mm. It's focusing on so-called affordable housing yeah. um, for low-income workers and you know that's great. And community housing which is essentially privately operated by community operators and neither of those categories of housing are really accessible by people who are in extreme poverty, um, Mm. which means everybody (laughs) uh, either doesn't have an income or, you know, on Centrelink or those sorts of things. Affordable housing and community housing is largely not accessible. Mm. It needs to be public housing and the Victorian government is not the big housing bill is not um, increasing the stock of of public housing. In fact, public housing is being demolished um, in many places across Victoria.
5: Yeah. Um, And I... I remember when they originally announced the big housing build. There was some provision for actual public housing, but it seems like they got rid of that as well. So,
8: well, there is is some. Yeah, there's a little bit of public housing in it, but Mm. um, a lot of it is simply to replace uh, public housing that's been destroyed uh, under the so-called public housing renewal um, program, which uh, you know has been progressively removing um, public housing um, and replacing it with. That called affordable housing or community housing? All these sort of hybrid housing complexes where developers, you know, are funded to um, build commercial housing and then a certain proportion of it is supposed to be community housing. But, um, you know, mm. that, that, that is effectively removing um, public housing and replacing it with commercial housing.
5: Yeah, and I think it's worth mentioning that even though, like you said, um, Flat Out is primarily pro women and um, you know pro gender diverse, it's also true that like a lot of the laws that affect women and gender diverse people and First Nations people in terms of prison and bail and all of that sort of stuff, they do affect everyone as well.
8: Yes, absolutely, and they're (laughs) intergenerational. I mean, one (laughs) of the one of the big gender issues uh, about uh, imprisoning so many. Uh, women and particularly Aboriginal women is the impact on their kids. So mm. you know, more than 60-70% of the women who are put into prison uh, have got kids and they're the primary carers and that's the big difference with the men. A lot of men do have kids but the the, the uh, primary carers are the mothers um, and so <laughs> this is increasing the number of children that are being put into out-of-home care whether that's kinship care or state care because uh, because of this imprisonment of women, and we know that that's resulting in a, in a lot of people, uh, kids going into out-of-home care. And from out-of-home care, we know there's a pipeline into juvenile detention and the adult prison system. So the more women and mothers who are imprisoned, uh, the more kids get caught up in uh, out-of-home care and juvenile justice as well. It's got a big intergenerational impact.
4: Mm. Yeah, thanks, um Karen, I guess, um, you know, you've spoken a little bit about homes, not prison campaigns. And, you know, there are other campaigns as well that people can get involved in, um, like Black Lives Matter and, um, you know, Black Deaths in Custody. Um, Yeah, there's so many different ways people can get involved. But I guess, you know, maybe just to sum up um, what you're involved in. Uh, and how people can get involved with these campaigns? You know, what what can people do to help? And, you know, just to wrap up the interview, if you had any sort of final thoughts um, or upcoming events or anything that you wanted to plug?
8: Yeah, look, I think you're absolutely right that this um, what's happening with prison expansion and the bail laws is very strongly related to Black Lives Matter and racism in Australia. It's uh, very related to the position of... Uh, First Nations people in a country where colonisation is ongoing and where the prison industrial complex is part of that original colonisation with, with Aboriginal people in prison to get them off um, the land that was being seized. Um, and, and it's continuing today, that, that um, use of the prison industrial complex to, uh, you know, racially discriminate and um, uh, uh, keep Aboriginal people... Um, Oppressed in this country, so I think, yeah, any involvement in anti-racism is, is really important, and bringing uh, anti-racism and um, decolonisation into the movement against prison expansion and, and for changes to the bail laws. I'd really encourage people to have a look at the Homes Not Prisons um, website and open letter. As I said, homesnotprisons.com.au. We'll also and we also have a Facebook page. Just look us up on Facebook. Uh, We will be having a protest in the lead-up to the state election. This is going to be a a big issue, I think, in the Victorian state election. Um, We're working with um, Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service, the Indigenous Social Justice Association and others that are active in this space um, to organise events in the lead-up to the election and raise it um, as something that really needs to be addressed. By the Victorian government that's considered so progressive on so many issues, but on this issue, it's uh, really doing a whole lot of damage to um, particularly Aboriginal communities in this state. Mm-hmm.
5: Well, yeah, thanks very much for joining us, Karen, and thanks for all the work you're doing and for telling us, you know, as much as we could fit into this relatively short interview about it. Thank um,
8: you.
5: <clears throat> yeah, brilliant. So, all the best to you. Have a good one. See ya. Thanks,
8: you. You too. See you. Bye.
5: All right, so we were just talking to uh, Karen Fletcher from the Pro-Woman Pro-Queer anti incarceration Movement, uh, flat out.
4: Yeah, and um, yeah, that was a really great, great interview um, um, that we had with Karen. And, and just to also, you know, make listeners aware um, that you know we can hear directly from those on the inside um, right here on 3CR. So don't forget to tune in to uh, Beyond the Bars. All next week during NADOC, it's so NADOC week is July fourth to to eight to the eighth. Um, yeah, sorry, I said that wrong. Uh, Mm. July fourth to the eighth, and so yeah, that that is a really important program, and you know we encourage people to support it and um yeah tune in to hear more more about what's going on. Yeah, Yeah.
5: and following up from the interview with Karen, um, the Monday show, which is uh, fourth of July eleven a.m. to 12 sorry 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. is going to be from the dame phyllis frost uh center which is the one that um the uh homes not prisons campaign is particularly focused on at the moment but we're coming toward the end of the show now and um we want to thank everybody for joining us you know thanks for listening and a reminder that even though, you know, the month of June is over and uh, the Radiothon is kind of over, you can still donate by going to 3cr.org.au slash donate, you know, phoning in nine four one nine eight three double seven, texting donate to 488 or, you know, various, you know, a big variety of ways that you can donate. And, you know, a reminder that, yeah, we are green left um, Radio that we are a slightly separate organisation, and so you can go to our website greenlife. au. Yep,
4: yeah, and just a bit of extra information on Beyond the Bars. Um, so it is you can tune in Monday to Friday, and you can go to you know if you miss it live, you can go to www3 dot org. au/slash Beyond the Bars. I mean, this is. Um you no, know, 20 years in the making, you know, it's been going for 20 years. So mm. it's, yeah, really just wanted to stress to, to
5: yeah. And sure. it has, it's been a real struggle, I understand, to get it back, mm. um, after COVID, cause yeah. of course it took a break, cause everything took a break during COVID. Um, so it's great that it's back on. And yeah, I think it's every day starting at, uh, 11 a.m. doesn't always go to 2 p.m., but it's mostly 2 p.m. So that's sort of the range you can, and you can listen to it. On 3CR, you can go to the website, all that sort of good stuff. But, yeah, that is the end of the show. Um, Thanks for listening. Uh, You know, it's a bit of a downer sometimes. (laughs) Everything's going wrong, and it's mostly Christianity and capitalism and that sort of thing. So thank you for listening. This has been Green Left Radio on 3CR 855 AM.
0: And and thank you all for for listening to our program.
4: Yeah, Jacob has a bit of a sore throat this morning. why voice has been a bit quiet. But, well, you know, we also, also want to quickly, you know, thank listeners again for all their support during Radiothon, and please keep donating. Bye. Bye. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio,
2: brought to you by Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which brings an alternative source of information that puts people and planet before profit.
0: If you like our work, become a supporter from $5 per month at greenleft.org.au slash support or free call 1-800-634-206.
3: Arise, you workers, from the slumbers! Arise, you prisoners of want. For reason in revolt now thunders and it last since the age of Kant. Away with all your superstitions. Serve our masses. Arise! we we'll change henceforth the old tradition and spurn the dust to win the prize. That's right, the, the commies, commies are back. <laughs> Reds underneath your beds and that. Cr-